The clouds gathering on the horizon worried the Cyprian captain. He'd been in storms before, but this felt more ominous. The sea had gotten steadily more choppy over the past hour as the winds had picked up, so he checked on his cargo below deck to ensure the copper ingots, food, and other items were still tied down and wouldn't add to his ship's instability for the coming storm. Everything was in order there, but by the time he finished, it had started to rain. He wrapped his cloak a little tighter against the rapidly dropping temperature and ordered his crew to take in the single square sail. Storms always made the temperature drop, but then again, the temperature these days was generally cooler. Ever since the island of Thera exploded, destroying the city there. That was a terrifying day. The priests and scholars are already spinning tales that will carry that destruction forward into the future. He'd heard the city's name mentioned, but couldn't exactly recall it. Atlantis, perhaps? No, didn't matter. There were more urgent concerns at hand. The visibility was rapidly decreasing, and the seas were rising. He knew somewhere off the starboard side of his 20-meter-long trading vessel there were rocky shores of the Assyrian Empire. Or maybe by now the Hittite Empire. He'd done trading with both, but there was a lot of conflict in this area these days, and it was not a safe place for a merchant ship carrying valuable cargo to land. Whoever owned the settlements beyond the ridgeline, the hidden rocks and steep coastal cliffs made it a place he wanted to avoid if he could. They were bound for the Aegean coastline, planning to sell the copper in the hold to the bronze workers there, probably the Mycenaean settlements. They were not an old culture, but they were energetic and had good lands and ideas. The captain thought they'd be a powerful ally to have in the coming years. But at this moment, he was much more concerned with the next few minutes. Sea spray was cresting over the sides of the ship, and the swells were getting larger. His oarsmen were struggling to keep the ship stable, and the rain was coming harder now. Wind had pushed the seas into a frenzy, and the ship's design was a good one, which made sure their bow was always pointed into the wind, but that didn't help the fact that he couldn't see the shore anymore, and their lack of a substantial keel made it hard to steer the ship in a steady course anyway. The captain assumed his position at the stern of the ship, and even though the shore was invisible, he knew the winds were blowing him towards it. He ordered the oarsmen to pull as hard as they could, pull like their lives depended on it, because in all likelihood, they did. They rode hard, pulling as fast as they could against the wind and the water, matching human strength against the timeless, relentless power of the sea and sky. It was impossible to tell if they were making any progress, though. The torrent of rain blotted out most of the other sounds, and the choppy waves left no reference in the rain and cloud-filled horizon. Visibility wasn't much beyond the ship itself, and all they had were the oars, so they used them for all they were worth. But it wasn't enough. There was a sudden lurch. Never something the crew wants to feel in open sea. The ship leaned heavily to one side and then pulled free of whatever had snagged them. Briefly righting itself and bringing a surge of hope to the terrified men on board. No one could be sure through the sound of the rain. But the sound of splintering wood is hard to mistake even in the heaviest storms. Their hearts pounding from fear almost as much as exertion as they held their breaths, waiting to see if the ship would stay afloat. And in that moment, the rain seemed to fade. The sound and color drained from the world. And the barely visible horizon began to tilt sharply to the left. Time moved in that lethargic way it does in those moments, slow enough to let each heartbeat bring recognition for the captain and crew. The hull is breached. The ship is sinking. We're too far from shore. We may never see home again. I can't feel the rain. I think we're underwater. The crew stayed on the surface as long as they could, 
But in 1600 BC, there was no Coast Guard, no way to send a distress call, and no rescuers coming to help. One by one, the tired crew slipped beneath the waves, rejoining their ship beneath the Mediterranean Sea. And that brings us to today. In 2018, approximately 3,600 years after this supposed shipwreck, a team of archaeologists discovered this western Antalya shipwreck about 50 to 55 meters below the surface of the Mediterranean Sea, near Antalya, Turkey. Obviously, no one knows that the scene I described above actually happened. So far, everything we know about this wreck comes from a brief 10-dive site survey in April of 2018 that mapped the site and made a preliminary estimation of the wreck's age based on what could be seen without any excavation. But rocky shores, rough seas, and frequent storms are safe assumptions, especially since they still happen in the area today and are well-known hazards even to modern ships. What we do know of the wreck itself is that a series of 78 pillow-type copper ingots, which were known to be made in Cyprus around the 17th century BC, are scattered on the seabed in a 14 meter by 5 meter space, consistent with the size of a merchant vessel of the time. Other Bronze Age wrecks found in the area contained multiple artifacts and invaluable clues to the ancient world, but none appear to be as old as this newly discovered one. So. Why am I talking about an ancient Bronze Age wreck on a podcast about exploration medicine? Well, aside from the fact that history is cool, one of the best parts about being an exploration medicine doctor is the chance to be part of the expeditions themselves. So I was invited by the Institute of Nautical Archaeology to participate in an excavation of this wreck, and over the next several episodes, I'll take you along in near real time describing the operations, events, and activities of the archaeological team. Before we dive into that, though, I felt I should give you some background on what we're likely to encounter and why it's taken over a year to plan and arrange the excavation. The first step is gaining political approval to excavate a wreck in Turkish waters. Texas A&M and the Institute for Nautical Archaeology has a long-standing relationship with the Turkish archaeologists at the Bodrum Research Center. Through this relationship, they were able to obtain permits from the Turkish Ministry of Culture and recruit qualified scientific divers familiar with deep water operations. They formed an international team consisting of doctors, divers, historians, and archaeologists to tackle their next hurdle, understanding the submarine environment. The submarine environment has a number of challenges. First and foremost, that we can't breathe water. Water also tends to wick heat away faster than air, alters color perceptions, and distorts vision. So, the deep water environment is cold, you can't see well, communication is more challenging, movement is altered because of buoyancy, and you have to depend on technology like scuba gear to survive. Additionally, water is a lot thicker than air, so much so that a one-inch square, 250-mile-high, that's about 400 kilometers, column of air weighs the same as a one-inch square column of seawater only 33 feet or 10 meters high. That weight is about 14.7 pounds, or 6.7 kilograms, and because the air, or water, completely surrounds us, this weight presses on all sides of us equally, leading us to creatively call it pressure. Since our bodies are mostly water themselves, this pressure has very little effect on those water-filled body parts. However, the parts of our bodies that are not filled with water, such as our lungs, ears, and gut, are very much affected by it, 
and anything else that creates an underwater airspace, like a scuba mask, a dry suit, or even wetsuits, will also be compressed as pressure increases. This is because unless more gas is added to the space, increasing the outside pressure increases the weight pushing on that space, and it squeezes it until the gas inside is compressed enough to push back with equal force. That's why your ears pop as you dive underwater, and also why pushing air into them using special techniques, like pinching your nose and exhaling, fixes the problem. This same effect happens in reverse if you go higher. Trapped gas inside an airspace will exert its own force and push out as pressure decreases outside of it. That's why your ears pop when you're going up in an airplane. The bottom line is that air is compressible, and the deeper you go, the more gas you need to occupy the same space. If I take a full breath at sea level, I only have to put one atmosphere's worth of pressure into my lungs. But at 10 meters, I now need two atmospheres worth of pressure, which is twice as much gas. At 20 meters, I'll need three atmospheres, and three times as much. At 30 meters, four atmospheres, and so on. This relationship is often called Boyle's Law, after Robert Boyle, the Anglo-Irish scientist who first published an experiment demonstrating it. This particular shipwreck lies between 40 and 60 meters, that's 131 to 197 feet underwater. That means five to seven times more gas in each lungful. This has some obvious effects and some less obvious ones. The obvious ones are that divers carry a fixed gas supply with them. If I breathe six to seven times more gas with each breath, I will burn through my gas supply six to seven times faster than I would at the surface. Also, if I hold my breath at 60 meters and swam to the surface, my lungs would now hold seven times the pressure of the atmosphere. That's nearly 50 kilograms, or 110 pounds, pushing out on every square inch of my lungs. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not that strong. My lungs would be torn to shreds long before that point. This kind of thing is called barotrauma, and can cause some serious injuries if you ascend too quickly and don't allow gas to escape from your gut, lungs, ears, and other air spaces. So, yes, that does mean that farting is just as essential as breathing and clearing your ears while you're diving. The other effects of gas at this depth may be a little less obvious. They have to do with how excess gases interact or don't interact with body tissues. In short, air is a mixture of about 20% oxygen and 80% nitrogen. There are other gases, but they make up less than 1% of the atmosphere, so for now we'll ignore them. Now when we inhale, we pull gas into our lungs, the lungs transfer that gas into the blood, and the blood transfers that gas to our body tissues where it's used. Oxygen is part of our body's fuel, so it gets rapidly used up by the cells. Nitrogen, however, is not used for fuel, so it just slowly leaves the blood and builds up in tissues until the amount in the tissues equals the amount of gas that we breathed. At 60 meters, you have seven times as much nitrogen in each breath that you did at the surface. Now that's a lot of extra gas building up in your tissues. So as long as you're under pressure, there's no problem. But if you let it build up too much by staying too long underwater, when you come back to the surface, you overwhelm your body's ability to remove it, and it starts to fizz out of solution like the bubbles in a soda bottle that's opened. This can be quite painful if it happens in muscles or joints, but if it happens in a blood vessel or in a nerve, it can cause permanent damage, similar to a stroke or a heart attack, or any other or serious organ when the blood vessels are compromised. The effect of excess nitrogen building up in our bodies and coming out of solution as bubbles 
is called decompression sickness, or more commonly, the bends. And this is what limits how much time a diver can spend underwater, perhaps even more so than how much gas you can bring with you in a tank. Now, if a diver wants to avoid this, that diver has to carefully track how much time they spend underwater, and in some cases perform stage decompression stops, often breathing special gas mixtures in order to give the nitrogen enough time to escape before they return to the surface. Now, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, hey, Dana, if nitrogen is the problem, why not replace that nitrogen with something less dangerous, like oxygen? And that's an awesome idea. But unfortunately, physiology doesn't like to make things simple for us. Oxygen is corrosive. If you leave metals like iron and copper out in the oxygen too long, they slowly corrode away into things like rust. Our bodies are carefully balanced to prevent that kind of thing at one atmosphere's worth of pressure. But at 60 meters, where I'm inhaling seven times the nitrogen, I'm also inhaling seven times the oxygen. And at that level, it starts to overwhelm our body defenses. And it causes damage. That damage manifests as things like seizures and lung problems, which you can imagine might be a problem if you're underwater, depending on a regulator. So if we use other non-oxygen and non-nitrogen gases, well, those gases also aren't used as fuel in our body, so they also absorb into tissues and can cause decompression sickness. They just absorb at different rates. So each gas would need its own set of tables and its own set of time limits. Basically, the more complicated your gas mixture, the more complicated your dive plan. But there are advantages to different gas mixtures, and they are sometimes used, just carefully. There are other effects of nitrogen, too. As it builds up in tissues, it seems to interfere with brain function in a manner similar to alcohol. It causes slowed cognition, discoordination, and increases the chances of panic if you're not used to it. These effects can be measured in as little as 2.5 meters, or about 15 feet, but they become progressively more severe as the pressure increases. Most people, including me, start to notice the effects of this nitrogen narcosis around 100 to 120 feet, that's 30 to 34 meters. And it's not that bad once you get used to it, but it is still a risk, and it is still being intoxicated underwater in a hostile environment. So those are the challenges facing our nautical archaeologists. Just like terrestrial archaeology, artifacts are often in ruins, buried underground, scattered over wide areas, and hidden by thousands of years of plant growth, animal growth, and erosion or chemical reactions. But in addition to that, we also have to operate in a totally alien environment depending on life support systems, extensive training, and careful planning to stay safe and avoid any one of the dozens of things that can go wrong. If things go well, the wreck site will be cold, dark, and with limited color while we operate heavy equipment and excavate fragile objects under a strict time limit while being intoxicated. If things don't go well, well, then we're dealing with decompression sickness, barotrauma, sea creature bites, stings, and venom, drowning, panic, and all the ordinary accidents and incidents of construction and excavation sites, but without the ability to escape directly back to the surface. That's why it's taken a year to coordinate and plan. But now, all that planning, training, surveys, permits, and preparation is paid off. The international crew of scientific divers with backgrounds ranging from medicine to archaeology is poised to embark on the Virazon 2 research vessel, reach across nearly 4,000 years, and ask those ancient sailors about their world. So over the next five weeks, join us and listen to a real-world expedition 
and all the excitements, challenges, discoveries, and unexpected circumstances that occur. Once again, I'm Dana Levin. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you're getting your podcasts. It helps us reach a wider audience. A special thanks to our production team, Sultana Pefli, Jeremy Seeker, and Emily Stratton. Music is written and recorded by David Keogh. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing us at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. I'm Dana Levin. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.